As we come to Mark 15, the scene is Jerusalem, early Friday morning about 5 a.m. The chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees have just finished rushing Jesus through a mock trial, which was totally illegal. They had conducted it in the middle of the night. And after that, they have now brought Jesus bound to Pilate's judgment hall, where court has just convened. And Pilate now finds himself face to face with a man who claims of all things to be the king of the Jews and the son of God. And Pilate has to admit that he has never quite come across anyone like Jesus Christ before and as we all know never would again. It's obvious that this man is innocent of any wrongdoing. Pilate knew that. The Gospels make that clear. He knew because of envy the Jews had given him over to Pilate. Uh, they were jealous of Jesus. They were envious of his following and the people that looked up to him. Pilate knew he was an innocent man, uh, not guilty of any wrongdoing. In fact, the only thing he was guilty of was going around loving people and doing good for the last three and a half years. But it's also obvious that he is a man that is greatly hated by the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees for the words which he has spoken and the works which he has done. And really it defies explanation, the, the hatred they have for Jesus Christ. Truly their hatred for him was demonic. We all know that. And now Pilate is being pressured into making a judgment concerning this man. A judgment that he tries his best to wiggle out of, but a judgment he is nevertheless forced into making. And I see in this whole incident not just the sad and tragic story of a man who let the crowd pressure him into making a wrong judgment concerning an innocent man, but really I see in this story the Holy Spirit is kind of holding up Pilate as an object lesson for the rest of us to learn from. Because I see in Pilate, in this incident, uh, I see that he is a kind of representative of the whole human race. Because every one of us at one point in our life has to make a decision is sometimes even forced into making a decision concerning Jesus Christ, making a judgment about this man, as Pilate was uh, on that day. Well, let's pick up the story in Mark chapter 15. And let's just start at verse 1, just to kind of get the continuity. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council... And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow insurrectionists. They had committed murder in the insurrection. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. And Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him who you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. 
Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? And they cried out more exceedingly, Crucify him! So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Now again, we have to turn to John's Gospel to get a fuller account of what went on on that morning. And of course, the end of John 18 and the first 16 verses of John chapter 19 are the parallel passage and they, they fill in some more of the blanks. They give us a fuller picture of what transpired on that morning. Pilate said in verse 39 of John 18, But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now, Pilate, I'm sure, thought he had figured a way out of this whole ugly mess. He knew the chief priests, scribes, and, and elders hated Jesus, but certainly the people loved him. So he figured, look, I'll throw it back to the crowd. I'll let the crowd decide who they want released. It was Passover time, and it was uh, the custom of the Roman government as a, a show of goodwill towards the people. Be, Passover, of course, being that feast that the Jews celebrate, which commemorated uh, their being slaves in Egypt, prisoners, if you will, and how that they were released uh, through the blood of the Lamb. And so around Passover time, the Roman government, knowing the, the, uh, you know, the whole idea behind the Passover, as a gesture of goodwill, they would allow the people to pick uh, whatever prisoner that Rome was holding at the time, and they would release one to the people. And so Pilate figured, man, this is perfect. Uh, I will go ahead and let the crowd decide. Surely they will pick Jesus, and then these leaders of the Jews, these chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees, they won't be able to go back to Caesar and tell them that I released them because I'll just say the people. They're the ones that wanted Jesus released. And so Pilate figured he had the whole thing figured out. So he gives them the choice. Should I release to you Jesus, whom you call the king of the Jews? Now right about that time, Matthew's gospel records that Pilate's wife sent him a message by the hand of a messenger no doubt he went into the praetorium because remember they wouldn't come in to talk with him in the judgment hall because they didn't want to go into the dwelling place of a Gentile around Passover since they would be defiled and wouldn't be able to eat the Passover meal. So Pilate had to come out to where they were. But by this time, Pilate's wife had sent a message to him by the hand of a messenger. So he no doubt went back into the judgment hall to receive the message and read it. And on the message, what she had written was, have nothing to do with the, basically, with the condemnation of this just man, for I have had a dream about him last night, and man, my spirit is troubled. I have suffered many things because of this man in a dream. And so as Pilate's reading this message from his wife and pondering the implications, the Jews went around the crowd, and when I say the Jews, that's John's term for the Jewish leadership, they went among the crowd and began to persuade the people, bribe the people, whatever they did, to choose Barabbas over Jesus. So by the time Pilate comes back out, after he has asked the question, and says, all right, what, what do you decide? What, what do you, who do you want? In verse 39, they all cried out again, saying, not this man, Jesus, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate was so shocked by what they had just said, by the choice that they had made, 
that Matthew's gospel records that he said, well, what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? Now, Pilate didn't know it at the time, of course, but that would become the question of the ages, a question that not only Pilate, but all of humanity would have to grapple with because really all of us are held accountable by God to make a decision as to what we're going to do with Jesus who is called Christ. What are you going to do with this man, Jesus, who is called Christ? I mean, he was a radical. And you know, with a radical, you have to take a stand. You can't be neutral when it comes to a radical. Jesus Christ was too radical. His claims were too outrageous for you just to be neutral. I mean, he said things that no other leader in history said, or at least if they did, no one ever took them seriously. Can you imagine Napoleon saying, I am the resurrection and the life? He that believes in me, though he dies, shall live again, and he who lives and believes in me shall never die? Can you imagine anyone in history making a claim like that? And you not giving it a second thought, but writing it off as the, as the battle of some maniac or madman? And yet Jesus Christ was obviously no madman. In fact, when at one point the chief priest sent the temple uh, police to arrest him, remember he was teaching in the temple? And they came back and they said, well, where is he? And they were kind of like awestruck. They said, no man ever taught like that man. They got so caught up in his teaching, they forgot to arrest him. I mean, a man like that who can teach with that kind of authority and clarity which can impact the hearts and lives of people in that kind of a dynamic way, is no madman. Jesus Christ, of course, was the Son of God. And it's just amazing to see uh, the people that will try to take a neutral stand with regard to Christ. You can't do it. Jesus demands that you take a position. Do you believe in him or do you not? In fact, when he said to Martha, we just quoted it, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies, he shall live again. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, he always wanted you to take a position. It's either, yes, I do believe it, or no, I don't. But you can't be neutral. Now, some would say, well, I can be neutral. Sure, I just refuse to get involved. I refuse to take a stand. I could care less who Jesus is. I'm not even going to consider his claims. Well, then you've already made a decision because Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. Neutrality automatically means you've rejected him. So Jesus Christ was a radical. And you have to make a decision. God holds each one of us accountable to make a decision as to what we're going to do personally about Jesus who is called Christ. Now, some would say, well, now wait a minute. You're, you're going to tell me you're trying to say that the decision I make with regard to Christ puts me in the same category as Pilate? I mean, Pilate crucified Jesus Christ. I mean, certainly, I haven't crucified him, so why would that make me on the same level as him with regard to Christ? Because very simply, the Bible says, for everyone who hears the truth and examines the claims of Christ and yet rejects him, they put the Son of God, uh, uh, they crucify again the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So to reject Jesus Christ puts you in the same category as Pilate. You're no different than he is. And you will suffer the same fate as him. Your punishment will be no less severe because Pilate's decision 
caused the crucifixion of Christ, but really when I examine the claims of Christ and reject him, as the Bible says, I do the same thing. I crucify again the Son of God and put him to an open shame. And in that regard, I'm no different than Pilate. And I will suffer the same kind of punishment that he suffers. And as we said last week, the beauty of this whole story, as we see it right now, this section, is that even though Pilate was sitting in judgment of Jesus Christ, really Jesus wasn't on trial, Pilate was. Oh sure, Pilate was sitting in judgment on the claims of Christ civilly and politically, but really the decision he made concerning Christ judged himself eternally. You see, you have to understand Jesus Christ is who he is, whether you accept him or reject him. I mean, it doesn't change anything. He's still the Son of God. He's still King of kings and Lord of lords who is coming someday to judge the living and the dead, whether you believe it or not. And so really, what decision you come to with regard to Christ and what you do about that decision will actually determine your eternal destiny, not his, right? So even though people sit in judgment of Christ, in reality, their decision or the judgment that they make concerning Jesus impacts their eternity, not his. So Pilate here is being forced to make a decision. A decision that he really didn't want to make. It's obvious. As we read the Gospel account, it's obvious he tried every which way to wiggle out of making this decision. And it's always a sad thing whenever a person lets outside pressure force him into really making decisions contrary to what he knows in his heart is right. I mean, it's always a sad day when a person lets pressure from the crowd force him into making decisions that, you know, run contrary to his convictions or in some way uh, will violate his conscience with, with regard to, a, to a, an issue or a matter or, or to what's right or wrong. That's always a sad day. But how much more so is a tragedy when a person lets the crowd pressure them into making the wrong decision concerning Jesus Christ? Because that decision carries with it eternal consequences. And you know what? Sometimes even emotional and physical consequences. At least in Pilate's case that was true because Eusebius... The church historian tells us that Pontius Pilate, and again, that's the correct pronunciation, Pontius Pilate finally wound up committing suicide. And I really think that this whole incident haunted him. I really believe that. I believe the whole ugly thing haunted him until finally he could take it no longer and he wound up committing suicide. You see, he tried to save his life, but what did Jesus say? If you try to save your life, what will happen? You'll lose it. And that's exactly what happened to Pilate. He lost it, first of all, emotionally, secondly, physically, and finally, eternally. He was a weak-willed kind of a guy who tried to play the consummate politician to please everybody. He tried to find a solution that would please everyone involved. He tried to play the politician, but he failed miserably. In fact, uh, it says in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verse 16, that because he was trying to reach a happy compromise, that's why he scourged Jesus. He had him scourged because he hoped that that vicious scourging would satiate the bloodthirstiness of this crowd and cause them to say, well, that's enough. We, we, he suffered enough. And Pilate wouldn't have to go through with the crucifixion because Pilate knew Jesus was an innocent man. But of course, that only served to kind of 
uh, like blood in the water. It only caused the, the, the crowd to go into a, a feeding frenzy. And the scourging didn't satisfy them. In fact, they almost became a riot uh, as they were calling for Jesus to be crucified. And so finally, Pilate had to give in. He had to acquiesce and have Jesus crucified, even though he knew it was wrong. He tried to play the politician. There's a lot of people like Pilate who tried to play the politician with regard to Christ. They know that Jesus is who he said he was. They, In their heart of hearts, they know he's the Son of God. They know he's the Savior of the world. They know that he's really the only way to heaven. They know the Bible is the Word of God and that it's really the truth. And yet, because they don't want to commit social suicide or because they want to protect their job and being a Christian or coming out and publicly declaring their faith in Jesus Christ could cost them their job or whatever it might be. They try to walk the fence. They try to, on the one hand, be a friend of the world. On the other hand, be a son of God or a child of God. It doesn't work. You cannot walk the fence. You can't be neutral. You can't kind of uh, you know, have one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom of God, and expect to get anywhere with that, because you, you can't. In fact, last Sunday night we studied about Elijah. Remember, Elijah went up on top of Mount Carmel, and he challenged the 850 prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth to a contest to see who was really God. And they took the two bulls, and they killed them, put them on altars, and put wood around the altars, but didn't set them on fire. And then Elijah said to the 850 prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, okay, guys, you're on. You go ahead and call to your gods, and I'll call to my God, and the God that answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, right on. Let's go for it. And so all these people were gathered around. But before Elijah turned to the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, he turned to the crowd and he said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If Jehovah is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. But all the people kept quiet, it said. Well, in the King James, it says, how long will you halt between two opinions? And that word is a word that means cripple. Remember when Jacob, when the Lord touched the, uh, the, uh, his thigh and, and knocked it out of joint, and it said he, he halted on his hip? He limped. He was crippled. Whenever you try to ride the fence, you know, between the gods of this world and the true and living God, you'll always be crippled. In your walk as a Christian, you'll never get anywhere. You'll always be stuck in a miserable place. Too much of Jesus in you to be comfortable in the world and too much of the world in you to ever be really uh, on fire for the Lord. You're just kind of stuck there. And to me, that's a miserable place to be in. But then you can read the rest of the story. They, they, they yelled and screamed all day long, jumped around the altar. A lot of emotion, a lot of excitement. Crying out to Baal about noon, Elijah said, Look, why don't you cry out a little louder? You know, maybe he's hard of hearing. Uh, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's on a vac away on a trip. You know, he's God, right? Cry a little louder. Maybe he's sleeping. He's got to be awakened. So they were screaming, Oh, Baal, hear us, you know, and cutting themselves with knives and lances, which was their custom. And about the time of the evening sacrifice, these guys were bloody, hoarse, worn out. And Elijah says, all right, guys, move aside. He says, all right, now take some water and douse the sacrifice. Four big pots of water. He said, do it again. Do it a third time until the water ran everywhere and filled the trench around the altar. And then Elijah lifts up just a casual but fervent prayer. Lord, 
let these people know that you alone are God and that I am your servant and consume this sacrifice by fire. And suddenly fire came down from heaven, consumed the, the sacrifice, the wood, the altar, the water, you know, and, the, and some of the dirt around the area. And God proved to these people, of course, that he was the only true and living God. But the idea, how long will you try to ride the fence? How long will you halt between two opinions? And that's what Pilate tried to do. He tried to walk the fence. And a lot of people are like that. They try to walk the fence. On Sundays, they try to worship the true and living God. All week long, they worship the gods of this world. Won't work. And so the people cried out, we want Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. And the other Gospels tell us he was also an insurrectionist. And during an insurrection, they had committed murder. So these were serious charges against him that Rome considered very serious indeed. But it goes on to say in chapter 19, Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. And Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Of course, we need to realize that Jesus began suffering for our sins even before the cross. The beating he endured at the hands of the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees, and then later on at the hands of the Roman soldiers, was a part of it. The crown of thorns, which were driven into his head, was also a part of it. Uh, the scourging, all of these combined along with the cross to be the price that he paid for our sins. In fact, Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And that's, of course, talking about the scourging stripes that he endured. With regard to scourging, scourging was one of the most cruel and inhuman tortures any people had ever developed. A scourge was a wooden handle which was wrapped in leather and it had 12 to 13 leather thongs extending from it and up and down each of these leather straps or thongs was embedded bits of brass or, uh, or bone or glass which had been filed to a point and at the end of each of these leather thongs there was a small lead weight and then the person who was to be scourged was either laid out on the ground tied with his hands and feet so that he was stretched tight or they would sometimes tie him to a scourging post which was uh, which had a ring that uh, on the top of it and you would throw the rope to the ring and then the person would be pulled up so that he was actually dangling off the ground several inches so that his body was of course extended and his back was tight and then the Roman soldier would begin to bring that scourge down across his back now the scourge was, scourging was actually uh, the, the Roman third degree uh, because it was their way of interrogating prisoners to find out if they were guilty of certain crimes against, uh, against Rome. And so the idea was, if when the, the Roman soldier brought the scourge across your back, if you confessed to a crime that they thought you had committed, the next lash would be a little lighter. 
you confess something else, then of course the next lash was a little lighter. If you did not confess anything, then the lashes got progressively more intense. Now, as we read last week, the Bible says, as a sheep before its shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus was sinless. He was not guilty of anything. So there was nothing for him to confess, which meant that at the end of that scourging, he was taking the full blow of that Roman soldier's strike. And historians tell us that the scourging was so violent so vicious that the first few stripes across the back would begin to cause, of course, the back to, to get tremendous welts. But after the first two or three stripes across the back, the skin would begin then to be split open. And by the time you reach the 39th, 40th lash, which was Roman law, oftentimes the back was reduced to pure hamburger. Organs would be exposed. Uh, intestines would be exposed. Arteries would be lacerated. In fact, historians record that many men actually went insane at the scourging post. It was so vicious and violent. And many others died right there. They never made it to the cross. It was so inhuman and so torturous that it was Roman law that no Roman citizen could be scourged without a formal trial. Because, of course, they would use it to interrogate people from different nations. But Rome said, no, no, not on our citizens. They have to be tried first and then convicted before they can be scourged. And of course, that saved Paul the Apostle's scourging, if you remember, because he was a Roman citizen. And they were about to scourge him at one point, and he said, is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman citizen without being condemned, in other words, without having a trial and being sentenced? And the guy who was about to do the scourging pulled back, because if you scourge a Roman citizen without a trial, you would then be subjected to the same punishment. And so the guy who was about to do the scourging went to his commanding officer and, said, officer and said, man, do you know this guy's a Roman citizen? And the guy went to Paul and said, are you a Roman citizen? He said, with a lot of money, I bought my Roman citizenship. Paul says, I was born a Roman. It was a very inhuman thing, extremely inhuman. It also says here in verse 2 that the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. These were no doubt Judean thorns, which were about three to five inches long and hard as nails. And they took that crown of thorns and they crushed those thorns and beat into Jesus' skull, beating this crown of thorns into his skull with rods. We know from the other Gospels, those thorns pierced then his scalp uh, and his skull. It was something you can't even imagine, I would, the, the pain involved in this, of course, they had no idea what they were doing, but they were fulfilling prophecy because God had already foretold of this very thing. And then they put on him, it says here, a purple robe. Uh, some believe the Greek actually says a scarlet robe, deep, deep scarlet. Some might take it for purple, but a scarlet robe, which to them was a mockery of his supposed kingship, but prophetically, of course, scarlet being the color of blood and the sacrifice uh, even though our sins are as scarlet the Bible says they shall be as white as wool well our sins were laid upon him he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him so the robe of scarlet signifying the sins for all of us that were laid upon 
him as he went to the cross. And it says they struck him with their hands. The other gospels say said they kept on striking him. The Greek is in the present tense. They kept on striking him with their fists and mocking him. Matthew tells us they also spit on him as they mocked him. In fact, we don't get the fullest picture of what he went through from the Gospels, believe it or not. We get a fuller picture with regard to what he endured from Psalm 22 and from Isaiah, where Jesus prophesying through Isaiah said, and I quote, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And so through Isaiah, Jesus was prophesying of what he was enduring there that day, the scourging he was uh, undergoing, uh, the mocking, the spitting, but also that he gave his cheeks to those who pulled out his beard. People don't realize how badly Jesus Christ was abused before he ever went to the cross. Not only was he scourged, which we've talked about being such a horrible, torturous thing to endure, but he was beaten repeatedly with closed fists by the Roman soldiers, these guys who delighted, they delighted in taking prisoners and abusing them. And they pulled his beard out with their hands. Isaiah goes on to say, he was so badly beaten and disfigured by the Roman soldiers that he no longer looked like a human being. And as I said a couple weeks ago, is it, could that be the reason that no one seemed to recognize him after his resurrection? Remember how he appeared to several people after his resurrection initially and they didn't recognize him? Remember Mary at the garden tomb? Jesus called her name and she turned around thinking he was the gardener. Remember? She didn't recognize him at first. Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? As Jesus appeared to them and began to talk with them, they didn't recognize him. Not until they got to Emmaus and they asked him to come and sit with them to dinner. And he broke the bread and it says, then their eyes were open and he dis they knew who he was and he disappeared out of their midst. Well, why did they know who he was when he broke the bread? It could be that they saw the nail prints in his hands. We know he bore the nail prints and the spear wound after his resurrection because remember when uh, he appeared to his disciples in the upper room the night of his resurrection and Thomas was not there and then later on when Thomas came back the disciples said the Lord was here and Thomas said I won't believe it unless I put my finger into his nail prints in his hands and my hand into his spear wound in his side and the next week Thomas was there in the upper room and Jesus appeared and said Thomas come here and put your finger in my hands and your hand in my side and be not unbelieving but believing so we know that he bore the marks the nail prints and the spear wound after his resurrection why not the disfigurement he took at the hands of the roman soldiers with regard to his face and all john says something that has always haunted me in john chapter 21 of course, you remember the story. This is now several, well, we don't know exactly how long, several days. It could have been several weeks after Jesus had resurrected from the dead. We know for 40 days he kind of stayed around, appearing here and there to his disciples and teaching them things that pertain to the kingdom. And then after 40 days he ascended into heaven. But during this 40-day period he would appear to them at different places at different times. 
Well, it happened at one point they were out in the Sea of Galilee fishing all night and they caught nothing. And of course, that morning Jesus appeared to them on the shore and they were still in the boat and he yelled to them, Children, have you caught any, any meat? And they said nothing. And he said, Well, throw your net on the other side. And they did and it was full of fish. Well, that's exactly what happened when Jesus first called them to be his disciples way back at the beginning of the three and a half years. And so uh, I believe it was John who said, It's the Lord. And Peter, who was naked from the waist uh, up, uh, dove into the water and swam towards shore. And the other disciples came in rowing the boat as it was pulling this net full of fish. And then when they got there, Jesus was already uh, cooking them some breakfast, some fish on the coals and all. And he had some food going. In verse 12, it said, He said to them, Come and eat breakfast. And here's the part that always has haunted me. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. It sounds like they weren't that sure, does it? I mean, it sounds like there was a little bit of, and they knew it had to be the Lord, but yet something about him, they weren't sure. And I believe it was because he had suffered such a brutal beating at the hands of the Roman soldiers and all, the pulling out of his beard from his face had to disfigure him that they didn't recognize him just by sight. It was the way he talked, his mannerisms, the way he t mentioned their names. Uh, that's how they knew. Now you say, well, why does he bear the scars of this beating? I mean, in his resurrected body, why? Well, it could be that those scars are going to be a constant reminder throughout all eternity of the great love that God had for all of us, so much so that it that in what he was willing to endure at the hands of those he came to die for, that when we see him for ages yet to come, we're going to know the depth of his love for us by what he endured on our behalf. So it says here in verse 4, Pilate then went out again. Now he's still trying to get Jesus off the hook. I mean, he's still trying to let him go. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Now we don't know how Pilate said that. He's basically saying, Look at this man. Now, he could have said that in such a way that he was now pleading to them for mercy. I mean, look at this guy. Hasn't he endured enough? Look at him. I mean, isn't this enough already? Or it could be that Pilate himself was making a declaration of amazement because he probably had never seen a prisoner, especially one that was innocent, go through that kind of a beating and still be standing there. And Pilate could have been saying to the crowd, wow, this is a man. I've never seen anybody endure what he's endured. Maybe a little of both. Maybe Pilate was astonished at the strength of Jesus Christ. And was also trying to get the crowd now to back off, to plead with them now for mercy towards this man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him. See, he didn't satisfy them at all. They wanted him to be executed. Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. 
The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid. See, I don't think Pilate realized what he was dealing with here. He knew there was something different about Jesus Christ. I mean, that was obvious. But to hear for the first time that he claimed to be the Son of God, well, he was already feeling very uncomfortable with this whole situation. But now, after he heard that Jesus claimed to be not just the King of the Jews only, but the Son of God, now he begins to panic. Pilate begins to become unraveled, unglued. And now he's going to try with... If he wasn't trying before to let Jesus go, now he's going to really begin to try because now he fully realizes the claims of this man. You have to understand that Pilate would have no doubt taken this in the Roman context. The son of a god. See, the Romans were very superstitious people. And they believed that the gods would oftentimes come down from heaven and take the form of men and walk among men on the earth. They believed that. Pilate knew that there was this was a special man. Pilate knew that he had never really come across anyone like Jesus Christ before. There was definitely something different about this man. First of all, Pilate had heard the stories. Uh, as uh, Paul the Apostle said in the book of Acts, these things were not done in a corner. The miracles Jesus did were done in the open. Pilate no doubt heard of the miracles Jesus had performed. People that received sight, lame that were made to walk, demons cast out, the dead raised to life. Pilate knew that Jesus Christ had supernatural powers. But now to hear, he claimed to be the son of a god. Of course, we know the son of the god. But Pilate thinking, oh no, I knew this guy was different. I knew he had powers. But is this why? Is he the son of a god? And then on top of it, around that time, his wife had sent him the message which said have nothing to do with this just man don't get yourself into this what she was saying you better find some way to get this guy off the hook he's innocent don't be a party to his condemnation all of this is beginning to weigh on Pilate see he's beginning to become unglued so that by the time he he has Jesus scourged and then wants to let him go and the Jews say, look, by our law, he has to die because he claimed to be the son of God. Pilate's, everything is starting to make sense now. Everything is starting to become clear to Pilate. The miracles Jesus performed, the supernatural powers that he had, this quiet kind of a calm dignity they had in the face of death. I mean, this was all very unusual, very unsettling to Pilate. He never had a prisoner like this. And now to hear that he claimed to be the son of God, Pilate's thinking, I'm in big trouble. I have just scourged the son of a god. I'm in trouble, man. I've done it now. And on top of all this, if this wasn't bad enough, the Jews had him between a rock and a hard place. I mean, two times he had gotten in trouble with the Jews and ultimately with Caesar over this whole issue of idols. Remember last week we talked about how that when Pilate became governor of Judea, he had the troops ride through Jerusalem with a kind of a show of power, but they each carried, the soldiers each carried a, a flag, and on top of the flag pole was a little uh, metal bust of Caesar. Well, the Romans worshipped Caesar as a god. To the Jews, that little metal bust of Caesar was a graven image, an idol. And they demanded that Pilate remove them, which he did not. 
And so for days and days, they harassed him. And well, it finally got back to, to Tiberius Caesar. Uh, and Pilate had to quickly remove the images from the flags. And then later on, he had some special shields made. And again, he had Tiberius Caesar's um, image inscribed into the shields. And again, the Jews went berserk and demanded he change the shields and he refused and so they they reported him to to caesar which was their uh right to do as under roman rule and caesar sent word back to Pilate that he was to immediately remove the shields because all he cared about was peace in the region he didn't care about some shallow transparent attempt by Pilate to ingratiate himself with caesar he could care less all he wanted was peace in the region and so he demanded that Pilate immediately remove the shields and said to him look if i hear any more problems from your district you're in trouble so Pilate was on thin ice with caesar and now this whole issue of idols is coming up again because Jesus claims to be the Son of God, and the Jews believe he's not, and so they want to put him to death, and Pilate knows he's innocent, and Pilate wants to let him go, but he's caught now between a rock and a hard place. And he's really trying his best to, to satisfy both parties, but he, he can't. There's just no way. So when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid, and went again into the praetorium. See, Jesus is in, in the praetorium. He's inside the judgment hall. The leader, Jewish leaders won't come in to him. So he's got to kind of go out to them. He's going back and forth between Jesus and the Jews. See, he goes back into the judgment hall, and he says in verse 9, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. You see, Pilate had failed to live up to the light that the Lord gave him. Remember in chapter 18, verse 37? When Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now that was Pilate's open. I mean, that was the open door. Jesus had given Pilate an open door. Pilate, if he was really sincerely seeking truth, could have said, all my life, I have been seeking after truth, ultimate truth, such as what is life really all about? You know, why are we here? Is there some higher purpose to life or do we just exist for pleasure and drunkenness and then we die? Pilate could have said, you say you have come to bear witness of the truth. I have always wanted to know what the truth is. Will you explain it to me? And Jesus would have given Pilate the gospel. No doubt about it. But Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now people say, well, he, he asked, well, what is truth? No. It wasn't a sincere question. It was a sarcastic question. It wasn't even a question at all. It was a sarcastic response. What is truth? And he walked away. Oh, he wasn't interested in knowing what truth was because he walked away. It was sarcastic. You know, what is truth? Well, at that point, Pilate had closed the door. You see, if the Lord gives you light, spiritual light, and you're faithful to receiving it and acting on as much light as you have, as much truth as you have, the Lord will always give you more truth until you have enough truth to be saved. But when a person rejects the truth, well, 
at one point God rejects them and God no longer speaks to them. Here's the thing, the Bible says that my spirit will not always strive with man. God said that. My spirit will not always strive with man. That's why Paul said, quoting from the Old Testament today, while you still hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation, Paul said. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Receive him. Because you never know when the day of grace comes to an end and the night falls, which is really the end of any opportunity you may have to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's called the unpardonable sin. Some people say, well, what is the unpardonable sin? The unpardonable sin is rejecting Jesus Christ, basically. It's rejecting the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, is rejecting the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will not bear witness of himself, but will testify of me. The Holy Spirit's whole ministry is to draw people to Jesus Christ that they might be saved. And of course, once they are saved, then he continues to draw them to Christ. They might be sanctified, and they might grow and become disciples of Christ. But when a person rejects the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they're rejecting Christ. And you can reject Christ and reject Christ and reject Christ. And every person is different, but there comes a point when you reject him for the last time. And you pass the spiritual point of no return. And there is no longer any hope. God's Spirit will not always strive with man. At that point, the Spirit of God leaves. And your eternal destiny is sealed. So that's a dangerous place to be in. And Pilate has crossed that point. And so Jesus no longer is answering him. It's obvious that Pilate has rejected Christ, and so now Christ has rejected Pilate. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? What a joke. Everything that was done to Jesus was all according to the predetermined plan and counsel of God. God was in complete control. And I think that was one of the things that kind of was unsettling to Pilate. I think Pilate said this maybe to assure himself more than anyone else because here he's sitting in judgment of Jesus. And he gets the very unsettling feeling that he's the one being judged. Jesus is answering, asking him questions. Who do you think I am? Are you asking me, are you a king, because you want to know the truth or because somebody else has told you that you're being sarcastic? And Pilate gets this, I, I'm convinced, this strange, eerie, unsettling feeling that he's the one being judged. And so he says to Jesus, don't you know I have the power to crucify you or release you? Maybe just to convince himself again that he was really in control. But Jesus comes right back and said to him, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Well, ultimately, he's probably talking there about Judas. But of course, the chief priest, scribes, the Pharisees would fit in here. But again, Jesus is making sure that Pilate, and of course all of us who would come down through the centuries and read the Word of God, that we would not again mistake who was in control here, that Jesus was no victim, he was really in charge. And he had willingly submitted himself to this whole process because he knew that that's exactly what his father had ordained for the sins of the world. And even in the garden when they came to arrest him, remember, 
They said, he said to them, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said to them, I am. And they all fell over backwards by the power of God. And then they picked themselves up from the ground. And he said, all right, who are you looking for? And they said again, Jesus. He said, well, I told you I'm he. Release these others. And that in the Greek is a command. He's commanding them. Let them go. You've come for me. You let these guys go. And of course, they all scattered. But they were thrown to the ground because, again, Jesus wanted us to know that he was no victim at any time. By just speaking his own name, the name of God, these guys were thrown to the ground. I mean, they had no power over him, but what he allowed them to have and all. And so he said to them, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who has delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Now, that was the final straw. I mean, Pilate knew they had him at that point. There's no way... There is no way it could have gotten back to, to uh, Caesar that Pilate had let a man go who claimed to be a king, the king of the Jews, because the one thing Rome was very strict on was any kind of insurrection, any kind of uh, attempt to, uh, to break away from Roman rule and to establish themselves as a nation with their own king. Rome would never have tolerated that. And so the Jews, knowing what they had to do to get Jesus crucified said look this guy claims to be a king we have no king but Caesar baloney but they knew the right buttons to push to get Pilate to do what they wanted him to do this guy claims to be a king if you let him go you're not Caesar's friend you're letting an insurrectionist go now the people of course are choosing for themselves Barabbas in place of Jesus now why would the people choose Barabbas over Jesus. And this has puzzled a lot of people. Why would the crowd that was crying four days earlier, Hosanna to the Son of David, save now, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the Son of David, why would that same crowd be so fickle that four days later they were crying, crucify him? Well, there's a couple of things, a couple of possibilities. One possibility is it wasn't the same crowd. And commentators have proposed this. They've said, look, the reason that these people were crying, give us Barabbas and not Jesus, was because this wasn't the same crowd that met on that Palm Sunday. This wasn't his followers, really. His disciples had split earlier. And they didn't know what was transpiring. They knew that Jesus was being taken to be questioned in front of the Sanhedrin, but they had no way of knowing the Sanhedrin would break all of their own laws and try Jesus at night and then bring him to Pilate to be executed. They had no idea that all of that was in, in the works. And so none of Jesus' followers probably had any idea that early this morning and the Jews wanted it to be early enough where they could get this thing done with before word had gotten out to Jesus' followers that he was being railroaded, that they might try to come and rescue him. And so it could be that Jesus' disciples, of course the twelve were hiding now, but the majority of his disciples had no idea what was going on. And that the crowd that had gathered there on this day at Pilate's judgment seat were Barabbas' followers. And they knew it was the custom of Rome every Passover to release one prisoner. 
And they could have come to demand that Barabbas would be the one that Pilate released. You say, well, why would they want Barabbas? Well, what was the charges against Barabbas? He was an insurrectionist and a murderer. He had committed murder while trying to carry out an insurrection. To the Jews, these were not bad charges. The Jews hated Rome, and they had many zealots in Israel, and especially Jerusalem, that tried to constantly overthrow the Roman government through revolts and insurrections. This was a common thing. Uh, it's not hard to see why Barabbas could have been looked upon as a hero in the eyes of the people, because to, to them he represented a freedom fighter, someone who was trying to throw off the yoke of uh, Roman oppression and to gain the freedom of Israel. These were not bad charges for the Jews. But we know that Barabbas was a lawless man. And the crowd chose Barabbas, the lawless, over the Lord, who was the epitome of the law. In fact, the law was fulfilled in him. And you know what? Things haven't changed all that much since then, have they? It's amazing the people, that the crowds, and we see it all the time, it's amazing the people that the public will hold up as hero figures, admire, look up to, want to follow and emulate. It's amazing. Think about it. Who in our culture are the biggest celebrities, the biggest heroes? Think about it. Hollywood stars, music stars, and athletes. We have to admit those are the biggest celebrities in our country. But think about it. Movie stars, they deal with fantasy on film. It's just all stories, fantasies. Musicians, music. Not putting music down, music is important. But because a person is a good singer or is a good musician, this is reason to place them up on a pedestal, especially when you look at the lifestyles and the values that these people hold to. Or athletes, many of them who can't get their li own lives together, uh, also have major problems. It's amazing how people will reject Jesus Christ as the role model, as the one they should follow after and emulate, and grab onto some of the strangest people to look up to. It's really sad. It's pathetic to think of it, you know. Uh, it goes on all the time. People are always picking Barabbases today as opposed to Jesus. It could also be, though, that this crowd did consist of many that, that had cried out Hosanna four days earlier. And now they were crying out, crucify him. It does say that the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees went through the crowd and persuaded the people, which could indicate they hadn't come to ask for Barabbas' release. Well, then why could they be persuaded to accept Barabbas and have Christ crucified? Why would they do that? Well, because people are very fickle, and people will tend to follow people or to throw their support behind the person that can do them the most good. Isn't that the sad reality of our country and how people vote? It isn't the person who stands for values, who's got the character. It's the guy who's going to give my district the most, okay, no matter who else he cheats in the process, as long as he gives my district the most. It's all pork barrel politics, right? When you think about it. 
the people had followed Jesus because they believed that he was Messiah. Of course, he was. But why did they believe he was Messiah? Well, because of the works that he did. He did the miracles of Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. But also, when Messiah came, again, the Jewish mindset was, he is going to lead a revolt against Rome, throw off the yoke of Roman oppression, establish his kingdom, and we're all going to be prime ministers in the kingdom of God on the earth, and Messiah is going to reign from Jerusalem visibly and literally. And so they were all following Jesus. In fact, Palm Sunday, when they were saying, save now, save now, actually they thought, here we go. He's riding into Jerusalem. This is it, man, the moment we've been waiting for. He's going to lead the revolt. Here we go. They're crying, save now. Not save us from our sins, but save us from Rome is what they were crying. But he gets up to the top of the Mount of the Olives and begins to weep over the city. Boy, he's not acting like a conqueror, is he? I mean, when was the last time you saw a conqueror cry on his way to con conquest? Well, it's obvious he wasn't going to be leading any revolt against Rome. In fact, he said, I'm going away now. And you're not going to see me anymore until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So now all the people are beginning to have second thoughts. Could this really be the Messiah? I mean, first of all, he's teaching us to love our enemies. And if, you know, uh, someone compels you to go one mile, go two. Well, that was a Roman law. If a Roman soldier saw you standing on the side of the road and he, was, he had this pack that he was carrying, you know, his, his supplies and things, he, he could compel you to carry his supplies a mile. That was Roman law. Well, Jesus said, if, he, if you're compelled to go one mile, go two. And boy, that didn't sit well, I'm sure, with the people at large. He's talking about loving our enemies. He's teaching us that, you know, he, he hasn't come to rule but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Something's not adding up here. And it could be that when the chief priests, scribes, and elders moved through the crowds, they could have said to the people, look, you think this guy's Messiah? He's not acting like Messiah. He's not doing anything that Messiah was supposed to do when he came. He's not leading a revolt against Rome. At least with Barabbas, you know the guy's an insurrectionist. You know where he stands. He, there's a better chance that he's Messiah than Jesus of Nazareth. And it could be the fickleness of the crowd. And again, wanting what they wanted, which was to have prosperity in the kingdom. When Messiah came, he was going to established the kingdom. They were all going to live in peace and prosperity and have plenty and be rulers and everything else. Well, they figured, hey, we got a better chance of that kind of life with Barabbas than Jesus. And so they could have chosen Jesus purely out of a fickle heart, even though he had done good for them and had fed them and taught them and loved them for three and a half years. When they saw he wasn't going to do what they wanted him to do, they were only too willing to throw him off and to choose a murderer and an insurrectionist. Very sad. People are very, very fickle. That's why it says that when Jesus did his miracles and people began to praise him, he didn't commit themselves, himself to them, for he knew what was in the heart of man. If you haven't learned the lesson before this, you should learn it now. As a Christian, we should be pleasing God and not men. If you please the Lord and serve him, you will serve people, but you'll serve them the right way. You'll serve them according to the will of God, you won't be a man-pleaser, you'll be a God-pleaser. Because you can't please man. And any pastor has tried to ingratiate himself with everyone who comes into his church and tries to keep people coming to the church by giving them special positions and ministries happens all the time. 
because he wants to build a big church, he wants to be a man pleaser, is setting himself up for a major, major disappointment because people are fickle. The best thing to do is to serve the Lord and to love people as God would have you love them. And you know what? People with the right hearts will come and pick up on that because they're not looking to be buttered up to. They're not looking to be, you know, given little gifts here and there for their loyalty. They're here because they want to be loyal to the Lord, see? And those are the kind of people God has led into our church. And I tell you, others have come and gone when they see they couldn't have what they wanted. Well, in this church, we were able to do this. Well, not here. Because we just don't hand out ministries to make you happy or to get you to stay at Calvary. We only want you to be a ministry if God's called you to be a ministry if you have the right heart. And so the people are crying out, we want Barabbas. Pilate is dumbfounded. He's shocked. He thought for sure he had this thing figured out. And so he says to them several times, well then, you know, what shall I do with Jesus? I find no fault in him. I mean, what am I going to do with Jesus called Christ? In another gospel it says, crucify him. And he said, at one point he said, all right, bring me some water. Matthew records this. He washes his hands and he said to them, this is on your heads. And they said, fine, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Man, that was a heavy, heavy statement to make. Little did they realize that statement would haunt the Jewish people for centuries to come. And it still, it still haunts them. They're still reaping the consequences of that decision. All the anti-Semitism, all the persecution that the Jews have experienced have all been the result of that one statement and what they did. Of course, we all put Jesus on the cross. You know, this mistaken idea, the mentality, belief that has come down through history, which I think was even behind the Crusades and all, that it was the Jews, you know, they're horrible people that crucified our Lord as if everyone was so righteous, you know, and these horrible Jews, they're the ones that crucified our Savior and King. Come on. The Bible says we all put Jesus on the cross, all of us. He died because of all of our sins. It wasn't the Jews that had him crucified or the Romans for that matter. It was all of us who nailed him to that cross. But the Jews did bear a lot of the responsibility. And when they rejected their own Messiah and handed him over to Rome to be crucified, and they said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children, well, that would become prophetic for centuries to come. That's exactly what happened. Verse 13, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, you know, hey, if you um, let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. In other words, it's six o'clock in the morning now. That's Roman time. John uses Roman time. The other gospel writers use uh, Jewish time. Six, the sixth hour meant 6 a.m. So they had already been there an hour now. Remember they had gotten there 5 a.m. when sun rose, court was convened at sunrise in Roman court. An hour has passed now. And so now it's the sixth hour, six o'clock in the morning, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king, still trying to let him go. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, Now the chief priests answered, 
We have no king but Caesar. And again, that was just totally their way of getting Jesus railroaded. But really, again, it was another nail in their coffin. And it really, in reality, it was a true statement. I mean, they only said it to Pilate because they wanted Jesus executed. But they believed that God was their king. But wait a minute. Their king literally was standing in front of them and they were handing him over to be crucified. So really, in all actuality, they had no king but Caesar. God wasn't their king. Jesus was not their king, even though he really was. We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And so again, we see in the story, Pilate being forced to make a judgment about Jesus Christ, a judgment he tried to get out of making, but a judgment he was forced into making. Unfortunately, in Pilate's case, he was forced by the crowd, and no one really forces you to do anything, but he, wanting to please people, wanting to hold on to his job and his life, chose his life and his job and lost his soul in the process. Uh, it's sad when a person lets the crowd pressure them into doing anything that they know is wrong, but especially, and sadly in Pilate's case, when it's you let the crowd pressure you into making the wrong decision concerning Jesus, which Pilate did. But again, he serves, I think, as an object lesson for everybody because everyone is faced with the same decision Pilate was faced with, no matter how hard you try to wiggle out of it. God will hold every person that has ever lived accountable to making a decision what they should do with Jesus, who is called Christ. I mean, what do you do with this man? Well, I believe he was a great teacher. I believe he was a great spiritual leader, but not the Son of God. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. Because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now, I don't know what you associate with greatness, but I associate truth with greatness. And how can you say a man was a great teacher and you reject most of what he taught about himself? How could you say he was a great teacher, but reject everything he said about being the Son of God, Savior of the world, only way to the Father, so on? You see, you're, you're on very shaky ground. I mean, you have to either say, yes, I believe in him and what he said, who he was, what he did, or I don't. Either he was who he said he was, or he was the biggest liar and lunatic that has ever walked on the face of the earth. Either he was liar, lunatic, or Lord. And you have to decide which one of the three he was. Of course, I'm sure almost everyone in this room, if not everyone in this room, has come to the decision that, that he is Lord. And of course, then we've bowed to his Lordship. Because that's also important. Jesus told his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? You can't call me Lord and mean unless you do the things I told you. See? Well, Jesus had a lot of would-be disciples that really weren't true disciples. Called him Lord, gave him lip service, but didn't live for him with their lives. That's also essential. See, that's a reflection or a manifestation of salvation. When you call Jesus Lord and then back it up by living for your Lord in obedience to what he said. Next week we will get to the actual crucifixion. And I'm sorry, guys, I dropped the ball today. We should have had communion today. I totally forgot about it. So we'll have communion next week, and then we'll study the crucifixion of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to die for us. 
and for opening up our eyes to the truth and for calling us, Lord, and choosing us to be your children. Because as you said, Lord Jesus, all who are of the truth hear your voice. You said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life. Thank you, Lord, that you have chosen us as your sheep, to be your sheep, that you have chosen us to be of the truth, so that when our Lord spoke to our hearts about the truth, we responded and followed. But we didn't do that, Lord. You did it. You put that in our heart. You gave us the ability to believe. Thank you. We can never thank you enough, Lord. But all you're asking for us is to just live for you and to love you. Help us to do that, Lord, that our light may so shine that when people see us, they don't really see us, but they see you shining through us that they might either run from the light or be drawn to it and be saved. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all you endured for us. We are so unworthy, but Lord, you're so loving that you were willing to die a horrible death that sinners such as we might be saved. Lord, we thank you. We love you. And we praise you. And we, we, we ask these things we Praise your name in these things in Jesus' name.